All right, welcome to the uh, fifth and final edition of our course studies on Hebrews. Um, it won't be the final ultimately because we do hope to have another session of five or six later this year and another another session of five or six after that because it will take that many to get through Hebrews. But for now, this is we'll take a break after this week. So let me begin with prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day, this wonderful day you've made. I ask that you would be with us, that your spirit would build faith in our hearts as we study your word together from this book of Hebrews. We ask you would open our eyes and we would behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the midst of Hebrews 3 and 4, which, as I said last week, is actually one big long warning, and I kind of had to bring it to a satisfactory stopping point last week. And this week we will get through it, I promise. Honestly, this some of the stuff we're going through today is some of the hardest stuff in Hebrews to actually figure out what he's talking about. And I'll do my best. I think I'll be able to explain it to you on the big picture level. If you want to get down to the minutia, um, it can get a little tricky. But from a big picture level, it'll make sense. And that's, I think that's the, where, that'll be my aim anyway, is to help you understand this section from a higher fly over. And if you want to dig into it, like I have for 40 years, <laughs> and let it uh, blow your mind at times, feel free. I mean, that's what the Bible is good for. There are places in the Bible that just invite you to, to wrestle, wrestle with it. And this is, this is one of those places, I believe. It has been for me, anyway. Maybe you guys will get it. But I, I think I get it, but at the same time, there's stuff in here I always just go, wow. Is that really what he's saying? Is that really what he means? So, essentially, um, let me let me get up my notes. I made some notes, but I might not follow them. But because this section kind of demands, like I said, a lot of a lot of stuff. Let, let's revisit. Let's reset the stage. Okay, what we talked about last week: the command of the book. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. I made a statement. This is my way of organizing Hebrews. I believe that the first four chapters of Hebrews are his way of helping us consider Jesus as an apostle. And then five through ten are his way of, chapters five through ten are his way of helping us consider Jesus as a high priest. I believe there's a, a clear... Jesus is an apostle, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is considered as a high priest. And that break, actually, I believe, happens at, uh, at the end of verse 4.13 and starts on verse 4.14, just so you know. So I'm going to try to get through 4.13 today. I want to get through 4.13. We'll mention 14, 15, and 16, but that's actually the transition into the high priest because he actually mentions it. If you see in 4.14, he says it. Since then, we have a great high priest. And he starts to go into the great high priest discussion right there. But before then, he's talking more about Jesus as an apostle. Now, 
Last week I explained to you what I believe are the distinguishing marks of an apostle. First and foremost, well, the word means they're sent, sent by God. But first and foremost, they're sent by God with the word of God. They speak the word of God. And as I shared last week, I believe they also have an extraordinary, um, they're extraordinary emissaries of God. They're like almost one of a kind. They're very rare. And Jesus fits the description nicely because according to Hebrews, he does bring the word of God. That's how he was introduced in the very second verse of the book when it said, but in these last days, God spoke to us in son, spoke to us in Jesus. So Jesus was God's speech to us. He is the very word of God. As John the Apostle will encapsulate so beautifully when he writes his gospel and starts it out. In the beginning was the word. And then the other thing is he's, he's extraordinary in that he has a position of authority that no one else does, actually. I mean, this is the apostle of apostles. We know that because he's seated at the right hand of God, from where he sees him face to face, by the way, if you want to know where. How does Jesus see God face to face? It makes sense. It's his father. He's seated next to him. How could he not? I mean, face to face. He's enthroned. He's sitting on a throne as the son. We talked about that weeks ago. That's the whole first chapter of Hebrews. He's called God and he's called Lord a couple times in chapter one, as I've listed there. And then here in chapter three, the author invites us, not just invites, commands us to consider Jesus as the apostle of our confession. And that Jesus is faithful over God's house. He's over God's house. He's ruling and reigning over God's house. And he's faithful. We talked about all that last week. And then another background thing I need to revisit is who, what, who makes up God's house? It says it actually in 3.6. Who makes up God's house? But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. We are his house. Under certain conditions. If indeed we are among those who hold fast our confidence and boasting of in our hope. Firm to the end. And the idea in, of us being in God's house denotes family. If you're in someone's house... He's your father or your big brother or your uncle or something. You live with him. And those terms of family have been popping up throughout Hebrews chapter 2. And I listed a few of them there. The author of Hebrews calls, calls the people who are in God's house brothers. He calls them sons. He calls them children in various verses, as we've discussed in previous weeks. And here in chapter 3, he says... We're sharers in Christ, or sharers of a heavenly calling. He said that in three one and three fourteen. But he also says in three six, we are his house. We are his house. So, 
That's kind of just to catch you up on where we've been. We have Jesus, the apostle, over the house. We make up the house. And then he proceeds to warn us. And the warning begins in 3.7 and goes all the way to 4.13. It's a long section of warning. And the way he warns us is he quotes from the Old Testament, as he's done so much already. And he quotes from the book of Psalms, as he's done so often already. He's quoted from at least eight Psalms already. I think this is the ninth one. And he just states the text. He just lays it out there as if it's to us. And he starts it with, in verse 7, As the Holy Spirit says, God the Holy Spirit says right now to you, God's house, you guys, listen up. This is Psalm 95, specially delivered by this apostle. This word from the apostle is coming. It's for you. Listen to it. And notice, it's, it's a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And he's going to exposit that text like a preacher for the next 25 verses or so. He's going to use that text and use words from that text and explain it. Apply it to us. This is the Holy Spirit speaking this text to us today. What does it mean? How does it apply? And let's start. I talked some last week about verses 12 and 13. He gave immediately, he gave a couple commands. I'll revisit those later. We talked about it again last time. But the thing to remember is the command was look out of yourselves and look and make sure among you there's no unbelieving hearts. And you see in those commands, he actually used a lot of the words from Psalm 95. Um, the, uh, let's see, as long as it's called today, he used the today word. He's grabbing phrases from Psalm 95. Today, encourage one another, today, that none of you may be hardened. That was another word from Psalm 95. Their hearts were hardened. Don't let your hearts be hardened today. How do you do that? Encourage one another today. And and in verse 15, he requotes it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's where I got that from, is what he's saying. That's where I just... That's, that's why I just said what I said, because Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Body of believers, not the you is plural. You hear his voice. You all do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. And then he uses, in the rebellion, he's referring to the fathers. He's using the fathers as an example of those who heard his voice, yet hardened their hearts. And that's where 
he goes with verses 16, 17, 18, and 19. He's going to carefully explain what he means, who these fathers are, what happened to them, and how they're fulfilling Psalm 95. Or not fulfilling Psalm 95. They had already done, they had already fallen, and now Psalm 95 is written afterwards about them as a warning for us. So what happened to these fathers in the wilderness? So I'm on page two of my notes. I guess I am tracking with them so far. So far. The fathers in the wilderness. This is the example. The, the Psalm 95, there's three questions that the author asks in these verses of Psalm 95's text. First, he asks, who are those who heard and rebelled? This is good when you study scripture, by the way. Ask questions of it. So who's he, who do you think he's talking about? Who are those who heard and rebelled? And I list the answer below. I'll go ahead to the answer. It says it right there in verse 16. Mm-hmm. All those who left Egypt led by Moses, in case you hadn't pieced your Bible together. What's he talking about? The fathers in the wilderness. Oh, it's the, it's the Israelites coming out of Egypt, the exodus. Okay, okay, we got it. Those, the, the, those are the fathers. Then he asks another question. Okay, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Because Psalm 95 says, they saw my works for 40 years and they provoked me. Who, who, with whom was he provoked? Well, it's actually the same people, but he describes them a little bit differently. He actually gives a reason for why they were provoking God. Was it not those who sinned? They were sinning against God, and their bodies fell in the wilderness. That, that phrase is heavy there, if you think about it. They heard God's word, they sinned against it, and their bodies fell in the wilderness, meaning they died, they were destroyed, they came to an end. They did not, well, we'll see what they didn't do, but their bodies fall in the wilderness. And then the third question he asked, verse 18, to whom did God swear they shall not enter my rest? That's the last verse of the psalm that he quoted. Who did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? They were not obeying the word of God. So you can, we can draw some conclusions here. First of all, they heard the word of God, preached by Moses, the apostle of the Old Testament, as, we, as I explained last week. And they did not obey it. They sinned against God, and they actually sinned repeatedly. If you read the story of the Exodus and Numbers, just those two books together, you'll see that it was a constant sin, sin, grumble, grumble. And God just keeps on keeping on, taking them to the wilderness. Occasionally God pushes back on them. Usually he doesn't. Usually Moses is the one interceding for them. But if you remember the story of these this generation that came out of Egypt and fell in the wilderness, when, when was the breaking point? When did God actually swear they would not enter his rest? 
what point in the story did that officially take place, where God finally, after having long-suffering and patience with these grumblers and disobedient sinners, when did he finally reach the, the tipping point and say, you shall not enter my rest? Anybody remember? Somewhere around the golden cow. No. Twelve spies. Twelve spies. The golden cow incident got God mad, absolutely. But he didn't say, you're not going to enter my rest. I was wondering, yeah, because I know they didn't fall until Moses throws through the Ten Commandments stone that he'd gotten already. They, uh, the, the thing is, the ten spies is when this happened. Okay? The ten spies. And this, this account is available for us in Numbers 13. And I'm going to go there and show you where this happens. Numbers 13, which, by the way, follows Numbers 12, which you already knew. But last week we talked about Numbers 12 was Miriam and Aaron's rebellion, if you will, and God declaring Moses is my man who I talk with mouth to mouth. And now right after that, they send out the ten spies. And here's the promise God makes. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. That's the promise. I am giving this land to the people of Israel. So go out, take a look. And then it lists the 10, 12, 12 spies. If you ever look at that, it's interesting. The only two in there who we still name our kids after today are <laughs> Joshua and Caleb. There's something to that. You, we, we name kids after heroes, not fools. So there are a bunch of nameless people who we won't mention. I'm not going to read that list. And Moses sends them out to spy and says, see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied on the land and... Uh, skip a little bit of this, but verse 23, they came to the valley of Eshcol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. So that's big, a lot of grapes. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs, and that place was called the valley of Eshcol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel. In the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak, giants, essentially, big, scary people. The Amalekites, 
they're they're kind of a nasty little horde. They dwell in the land. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the land, and the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell. There's a lot of there's a lot of bad people there. Okay, that's the report. They present the facts. The facts are it flows with milk and honey. Look at the fruit. And there's a lot of intimidating enemies there. Now, all 12 saw the same facts. They all saw the same. This is what, this is what it is. And there's two different responses. Here's the first response. Caleb, verse 30, quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Why? Because verse 1, God said, I'm giving it to you. Mm-hmm. Caleb said, God said he's giving it to us. If, said, if God said he's giving it to us, he's giving it to us. Let's go. He's giving it to us. God, the same God who brought us out of Egypt, he's giving it to us. Let's go. But then there's the second report. The men who had gone up with him, the other ten, we're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than us. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, the giants. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. (laughs) All right. Both groups of people saw the same facts. Caleb and Joshua, turns out, was with him saw the promise and they said God said it's ours if he says it's ours let's go and what do the other guys do they don't they don't believe God's report they don't believe it they see the bad people and go oh no we can't do this by ourselves they you see what they're doing here they're not believing. They're not believing the promise of God. God said, it's yours. And they're saying, no. And then, how does the rest of the congregation respond in chapter 14? Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So the people of Israel believed the ten, not the two. It was two reports. One of the promise, one of we can't do this. And all the people went with the we-can't-do-this crowd. They chose that crowd. And here's what the Lord says in response. We'll get down to verse 11. Because Moses and Aaron fall on their faces first. And Joshua and Caleb joined them. 
and tear their clothes. But in verse 11, the Lord responds, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. And then Moses intercedes, saying, no, 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 don't do that. You said you're bringing these people out. There's an intercessionary paragraph that I'll skip over because I want to get back to what the Lord says in verse 20. And the Lord responds to Moses' intercession. I have pardoned. I'm not going to wipe them out right now. I've pardoned according to your word, Moses. But truly, this is, this is the oath. This is, where he's, this is where he's swearing. But truly, as I live, that's, that's oath language. As long as I am living as God, I swear. And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord... None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and ten is is more than ten times, but ten times have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despise me shall see it but my servant Caleb because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. And Joshua too, he doesn't say it right there, but both of those two will see the land and none of the others will. And it's basically, it's all because God spoke the promise, they refused to believe it, and they refused to obey. And at this point, after wandering, God swears, as long as I live, none of those guys are going in. Only the two that had that believed and obeyed. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. He's pointing to that when he's asking these questions and when he makes his response in the first part of chapter 4. Because the way Psalm 95 said it... <clears throat> uses an interesting word. Psalm 95 didn't say didn't say um, as I swore my wrath they shall not enter my land. Psalm 95 switches the word up and uses a word called rest. And the author Hebrews is going to spend 11 verses explaining to us are making us think about this rest. What is this rest? And I'll, I'll just say up front, it's something different than the land. And the author of Hebrews will say that too. When David wrote Psalm 95, this is actually what he's going to say later in chapter 4, he was talking to people who were 500 years removed from this generation that had been in they'd been in the land of Canaan and he was their king now so when he's telling them today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts he's not talking to those 
guys from 500 years ago, he's using them as an example, saying, today, guys, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Because what did God effectively say to them? As I swore my wrath, they'll never enter my rest. So if we don't obey God today, we're not going to enter his rest. We're not going to enter his rest now. So the rest then was land, a promise of land. But what's the rest now? What is this rest now? What's the promise? What's the fear of us not entering his rest? What's that all about? In Hebrews 4, 1 through uh, 11 are going to talk about this rest a lot. It almost shows up in every verse. And I'll pick it apart and help us try to grasp what it is. If you look at, let's see, we know how not to enter the rest following the example of the fathers. So uh, when is this rest? I'll start with this. No, no, I'll start with the B at the bottom of page two. How to enter the promised rest. That's where we'll start because that's verses two and three. Verses two and three. I'm going to put verse one aside momentarily. Get back to it. Verse two and three. For good news came to us just as to them, comparing the word to us today versus the word to the fathers in the wilderness. We have good news preached to us, much better news actually. Got the gospel, right? Good news came to us. Good news came to them. You're going to get land. We're going to get something better. Our good news is the gospel. We're going to be with Jesus forever if we trust him, right? So there's a comparison. Both, both parties today and back then have good news preached. Well, what's the difference? Not in the good news, but what's the difference? Or what, note, note what they did that was not good. Good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That's key. Why didn't it benefit them? They were not united by faith with those who listened. And this is a verse you can raggle about. What's he saying? (laughs) What's that mean? It doesn't help that when you go to the King James, it's translated differently. There's been debate through the years as to how best to translate this, depending on one particular word that may or may not have one particular letter added to it. King James says they were not united by faith in faith in their hearts when they heard. That's the way the King James says it. And that, that actually makes the most sense to us. The good news comes to us and we either believe it or we don't. We didn't believe it by faith. Therefore, it didn't serve us any purpose. We rejected it. That's the way the King James translated it four or five hundred years ago. Well, apparently the manuscript evidence says that one word probably shouldn't be translated in us, but with those, it's not. The unitedness of faith is not what you think of in your heart, but whose camp you join with which actually makes sense with the story in Numbers. 
the people sided with this group, not with the ones who had the faith. They didn't mix with Joshua and Caleb. They mixed with the unbelievers, and they followed the unbelievers, and collectively their bodies fell in the wilderness. And he's, that's what he's referring to here. But the implication is fascinating because we think of faith primarily as an internal response to the gospel. And it is. I'm not going to say it isn't. But the author of Hebrews is using the example of the Old Testament that the guys whose bodies fell in the wilderness joined with the faithless ones instead of the faithful ones. And that's kind of what he's saying here. He's, the, the warning is, do the same here. Join with the faith, the ones who actually believe, not with the ones who don't. Because you too might end up having your body fall in the wilderness with those who don't. It's like, pick your camp. Pick your camp. And then you go, well, that's, that's interesting. It's like, so it depends on who I hang with, in a sense. Who do I follow? Who do I listen to? Do I listen to those who believe or do I listen to those who don't believe? There's this corporate element that's fascinating to think about. And it kind of goes again with the, uh, the response that it requires of us. Remember he said in the... Uh, Verses 12 and 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. It's like, look around you, and if you see anybody in your camp who's unbelieving, go help them out. And here he's saying, make sure you're in a camp of believers. Make sure you're in a camp of believers. That's, that's kind of what verse 2 is saying. So how, the answer to how do we enter the promised rest according to Hebrews be united by faith with those who, who listened or those who heard and believed. Throw your weight with them. Because these ones believed the message, they obeyed, and people followed them. Not many. Joshua and Caleb, not many people followed them. But we should be among those who follow those who believe. And you might ask, why isn't, he, why isn't it internal faith? And I, I think this has something to do with a bigger picture in Hebrews. Hebrews is written to immature believers. Chapter 5 is going to say that very clearly when we get to it. You've come to need milk and not solid food. You should be teachers by now, but you're not. And it's interesting how he starts out with these early commands and warnings are... Okay, you weak-minded believers, follow the faithful ones. He's, he's telling them, get with the good crowd. Listen to the, the good faithful ones, not the ones who are disbelieving. Be careful who you listen to. And, and the goal of Hebrews, by the way, is to take these immature believers and to mature them. And he will. He's going to mature them throughout the letter. But right now he's assuming they're like babies and he's talking to them like they're children. And I think that explains why he's doing all these warnings, by the way. Because, just take the example of 
if you've raised kids, when you're when your kids are very young and immature, how do you get them to behave? <laughs> and what's motivating them to behave, I guess is the actual word. I, I believe it's this. They're afraid. They're afraid of the repercussions of not obeying you. So they're really responding in fear to your authority as a parent. And that's how a two or three or four or five-year-old or someone who never grows up, that's how they respond. <laughs> they, they're trying to avoid, they're trying to avoid the pain, the discomfort, the spanking, the inconvenience of not having what they want. They're motivated by fear. Oh, I'll move over here. They're very immature. Now, hopefully as they mature, how, what changes? Why do they start obeying their parents, ideally, when they're 18, 19, 20, and beyond, is it because they're afraid of afraid of the repercussions of their disobedience? Or are they following their parents because they want to please their parents, because they love their parents, because they don't want to hurt their feelings, they want to do what's right? Hebrews is doing the same thing. I'm just, gonna, I'm just putting that out there. It's like, in the beginning, he's talking to two-year-olds, and he's motivating them by fear. Fear. You don't want to die in the wilderness, do you? Get with the crowd that's believers and follow them. And by the end, by the end of Hebrews, he's going to be saying, run with endurance the race set before you because you've got your eyes fixed on Jesus, and I've got that motivation now. I'm not just scared of getting spanked. I want the prize and what Hebrews is trying to do is get us from trying to avoid the spanking to going after the prize. And we're right in the middle of chapter 3 and 4, the biggest warning in the book, where he's talking to kids. And his motivating impetus is fear. Warnings inspire fear. And they work on young, immature people. They never go away. Even as an older person, there are still warnings at the end of Hebrews. But he's trying to get them to get their eyes off of avoiding the bad and looking at Jesus, fixing their eyes on Jesus and wanting to go after him. So right now, though, he's dealing with kids like those people in the wilderness. And he's going to motivate them. Um, I'm going to say, I'll just go back to verse 1. Look at the command there. Look what he says. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's a command, guys. And it's a command we usually read over and choose not to put up on a cross stitch in our houses. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach the promises. You know, it's like, whoa, that's, we don't want to be reminded about this, but it's actually a command. He's commanding them, let us fear. Be afraid of the consequences of your sin. It's a command. And I'll just say, it's a command. (laughs) It's not a command we want to hear, but it's a command to like, oh, 
There are promises. If we don't hear and obey, we might not enter those promises. So let's fear. So I'll just leave that for now and I'll get back to it. There's more there. So anyway, I've just explained about this rest and this motivation of uniting yourself with those who have heard. And there's a couple other things I'll briefly go over here, starting in uh, page three. When is this rest, this promised rest? When, what time period? This is an interesting thing to think about. It's a different topic, kind of, but it's, when is this rest? For the fathers, it was the promise in the future of entering land. But then the author kind of, I would say, confuses us by going through verse 7 and 8. No, no, not 7 and 8, 4. He says this. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Quoting in verse 3, quoting from Psalm 95. Although his works, God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. So God's works were finished. Why? Because verse 4. He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. You know where that somewhere is? Genesis 2. It's funny that he says somewhere. It's Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 2. It's God resting on the seventh day after he created the world. Before the fall, by the way. Before all this sin entered the world, God rested. And he's bringing this up here. He says, here's the rest. God, God's been resting. He's been resting since the creation of the world. God, God's still at rest is what he's implying. God's resting right now. God the Father. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. God the Father's work ended at creation. He's been resting ever since. Jesus' work finished on the cross, and he's been seated at the throne resting ever since. And now the person of the Holy Spirit, who's at work, is the Holy Spirit, working, working, working in our hearts to get us with the Father and the Son. God the Father essentially... The implication is, he's at rest right now. So, when is this rest? Is it a rest in the future, a promised rest? Or is it a rest right now? Can you enter this rest now? Or do you have to wait till you die and go to heaven? This is the big question, right? Does this rest mean at the end of your toiling life, you finally go to be with Jesus and rest Probably yes, but actually, if you read about the future pictures of heaven in Scripture, they don't sound very restful. <laughs> They're pretty loud. There's a lot of worship, a lot of throwing crowns at each other. Well, no, throwing crowns at Jesus. It's, it's, uh, rest is not the word that would come to mind. So maybe that's not what the rest is I mean, there's a sense of rest, but we're actually going to start working again in a different way we don't even understand right now. We're going to be glorifying God and probably not sleeping anymore and not growing tired or weary. It doesn't sound like a restful place. So what if the rest has something to do with 
here and now? What if it has something to do with just being in the presence of God now, who is already at rest? He's already at rest. Before this meeting, I I did a search on the use of the word rest in the Old Testament. I mean, right before this meeting. Because I figured this author, he's so into the Old Testament. This rest word had to show up somewhere besides Psalm 95. It doesn't show up in, in numbers. And here's, here's, here's where it showed up. This one, this one pops out. Add this to your notes. Isaiah 66, 1. God speaking. I'll read it. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Sounds like where Jesus is right now. What is the house, house language, what is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest, question mark? There's the word rest. What is the house, and what is the place of my rest? And this author has been telling us who the house is, and now he's telling us where the place of rest is. I think you can take this to say it's wherever God is, where he dwells. If God dwells with you, you're, you're entering his rest. You have him. His house is a place of rest. Why? Because he's there. So this rest is probably not just the promise of being having a mansion in heaven where you can sleep all day, which won't, doesn't appear to be the case. We're not going to be sleeping in heaven. It appears to be just having the presence of God dwell with you. You're at rest when God the Father dwells with you right now and then, both times. So this, this rest is, a, is like it's, a, it's an already but not yet promise. We're not yet at the full place of rest. We're still, we're in a place where we are, we can be at rest. Even rest in the middle of a storm because God is with us. It's a, it's a different idea of rest. It's not the absence of toil in this life anyway. In that life it, it will be. That life being heaven, right? But right now, we can be enter his rest in the midst of the storm. We can be like Jesus in the boat, sleeping. Remember that? The storm on Galilee? And he's just asleep. And all the disciples are like, what's up with this? They're toiling, they're, they're afraid, and Jesus is just asleep. And they wake him up, and he's like, oh, you have little faith. I mean, you should be sleeping with me, is what he's implying. You're with me. Be at rest. Okay? So there's this idea that when you're with the Father and the Son, you're at rest. And I think that's, that's a good way to take it. So, what is the rest? I believe it's, I've listed it there on page three. It's a place where one is not toiling and rebelling against God anymore. It's a place where they're not working to sin against or provoke God anymore. It's a place where we're resting in God's finished work on our behalf through Jesus Christ. 
The promise of rest still stands. That's what verse 1 says. Because this promise of rest still stands, let us fear lest anyone should fail to enter it. It's available today. So how, how do we, what do we do about this, these promises? And the, the author actually gives us two more commands. I mentioned the first, let us fear. And then he's going to say in verse 11, let us strive. Let us strive. All right? This whole section, four, 1 through 11, is a section about rest. Begins with a command, ends with a command. And I believe the two commands work together. Let's fear that nobody around us should fail to reach it. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. They're basically saying the same thing. Look around you. Make sure, be afraid. First of all, be afraid that this doesn't happen to you or anyone around you. And together, strive to get into the rest. Work hard at getting into the rest. That, that command, that does, it's like so counterintuitive. You want to enter rest? Strive. <laughs> Work hard to rest. And I think that's an accurate description of the Christian life, actually. I mean, we've got toil around us. We've got problems. We've got all kinds of opportunities to not believe. Temptations to think God can't meet us in our need. And it's up to us to collectively strive to get to that place of rest, right? To get to that place of, but Jesus is here with us in the boat, sleeping. We can sleep with him in the middle of the storm. We can sleep with him. That's what that command is saying. Strive to enter that rest. And, hey, once again, another one of those commands we don't cross-stitch. Strive to enter that rest that none of you may fall short by disobedience. That, maybe that's a good thing to... You could hang that scripture in your bathroom or something. Just to warn people to keep it off the walls or something like that. Strive! But we don't hang this anywhere else in our house. I think it's fascinating, Jim, that the next verse is that one about the word of God is sharp. Yes. And that's what we'll get to right now. The famous verse 12 that most of you have probably memorized is coming next. And if you the thing you may not realize is it's part of the warning. It's the conclusion to the warning. Because how is he using the sharp word of God? How is he describing this word of God? He's not describing it like we heard last week in the sermon, the sort of the spirit that you do battle with. This is, this is the word of God doing business with us. Look at it. The word of God, it exposes our heart. It's, it's a God wielding his word to expose our heart. Now, who is the word of God? Who's wielding this word of God? Jesus, Jesus the apostle. This is, this is bringing the conclusion to the apostolic role of Jesus. After going through this bit about rest and warning us that you can miss out if you're not striving to enter it, he says this, for the word of God, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. 
It pierces to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God will expose your sin. Verse 13. We typically don't memorize verse 13 and 12, but it goes right with it. Same, same sentence. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This word that the apostle brings exposes our heart, exposes our need, exposes our tendency to drift, our tendency to sin, our tendency to disobey and follow the lead of those fathers in the wilderness. See why it's warning? It's scary. It's like, oh my goodness, the word of God is going to do this to me? (laughs) Don't cut me off. I don't want... The word is coming, and it will expose your need. It will expose your need for... Jesus the Apostle brings the word that exposes our need for Jesus, the great high priest. Yes. The setup, the author of Hebrews has gotten us to the point of where we should be very afraid of our inability to enter this rest, our tendency to drift, our tendency to disobey, our tendency if we don't have help, we're going to have our bodies laid waste in the wilderness. And the word of God brings it and says, there's none good. All sin. You need help. You need, you need help. And guess what? The same Jesus who brings the word that cuts our heart and exposes our sin is the same one who fixes it. He fixes it as the great high priest. So much so that I'll just finish with the last three verses just because this is, this is it. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He came down, became a man, Jesus the Son of God. Hold fast our confession. There's that hold fast again. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's a man like us, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We tend to go astray. He never did. Let us then with confidence, that word confidence we talked about, three six, chapter 3-6, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what chapter 3 and 4 have done is they've effectively scared us and exposed our need for the great high priest. And that's where the author has us, right where he wants us, so he can begin to tell us about Jesus, the great high priest. And that's where we will explore in August or September because we're done. <laughs> All right. So I will uh, I'll, I'll I'll I've got a little time. I'll ask for a question or two if anyone wants to since this is the last meeting anyway. Any 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 comments?
or thoughts. When did you discover you were in love with the book of Hebrews? How did that happen? Well, I'll tell you, when I was 20, that was last century. <laughs> um, I, was, I was in love with the Word of God as a young man. I was reading the Word and I took it on myself to start memorizing scriptures in the New American Standard of all things. If you've read New American Standard, it's awkward. And I just started memorizing. And I started with the book of James. Um, I did First Peter, Second Peter, Jude. And then I tackled Hebrews. And I was able, I memorized the book of Hebrews when I was 20. I was able to quote it. And it certainly had an effect on me at that age, and it has ever since. Because you get that word in you. and I mean, I can't quote it today like I did then, but it's, it's there. And words like, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all who are, are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom. I must give account. That's had, that's, words like that have had an effect on me my whole life. So, and, I, and I just... I just keep studying it, and I keep digging into it, and I keep wanting to bring it to to uh, to you all because it's it's a beautiful book, and it it really has. Um, it's been fun. It's been a fun challenge for me to meditate upon it, and I and I won't fully understand it ever, but that's true with. The word in general, there's always more there. I'm going through it, and I'm still finding stuff, like the connection to Isaiah 66:1. Just this morning, you still find connections. All right. You actually talked about Hebrews on the first date. That's when you fell in love with me. And by the way, happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. It is it's a fitting way to celebrate our anniversary with knowing that the Word of God is exposing our sin and our need for the great high priest. And our need for the great high priest. All right. Let me, let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this beautiful book that you've given us to look at, ponder, study, and learn about you, learn from examples in the Old Testament, and to motivate us to want to enter your rest and beyond with the company of brothers that you have provided for us, Lord. I ask that these truths would just build our faith and carry us forward. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.